0: Welcome to the Women in Government podcast, whether discussing important issues or policies of the day, this is a place where lawmakers and decision makers unite to get the conversation started.
1: Our country has been at unrest for quite some time now, but it seems like everything came to a head the moment an African-American man took his last breath while in police custody. George Floyd's untimely death in Minneapolis, Minnesota sparked outrage all across the United States, resulting in protests and cries for police reform. At times, it may seem like no one is listening, but a group of high-power chief executives of almost 200 large companies are working hard to move the needle when it comes to real change. Hi, I'm Colorado State Senator Julie Gonzalez. Thank you for listening to the latest Women in Government podcast. On this episode, we're talking about one of the hottest topics in our country, social justice. Joining the conversation is Ken McNeely, president of AT&T West. In 2013, Ken received the Black Business Association's Top 100 African Americans in Technology Award. In 2014, the Vanguard Award from Equality California, and in 2017, the the Luminary Award from Our Family Coalition.
0: Thank you, Senator. So happy to be with you today.
1: Before we get started, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to, like, or share our podcast. You can also email us by visiting womeningovernment.org. It's almost impossible to go a single day without hearing or seeing something about the Black Lives Matter movement. George Floyd's death sparked outrage and the public is demanding change from those in power. This includes business leaders who are under extraordinary pressure to do more than just pledge their support via social media, but rather to take action to combat systemic racism. AT&T's Executive Chairman Randall Stevenson has been a consistent advocate for equity and social justice. This summer, he helped start and lead a committee on criminal justice reform for the Business Roundtable's Task Force on Racial Equality and Justice. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Can you explain why it's important for business leaders to speak out on issues of equity and justice?
0: Sure. Senator Gonzalez, thank you, and thank you for engaging in this important conversation. Many of us were profoundly impacted by the death of George Floyd, and it really resonated throughout the halls of corporate America, in part because many of us manage significant African-American workforce, and indeed, we are many of us African-American leaders. And it's really difficult for us to be able to step into the halls of our corporations and leave our personal lives behind. And so we brought that emotional grief and that pain inside the corporate walls, and so did many of our employees. And so to not respond to this outcry, to not respond to – the social unrest that we were seeing in America would have been really tone deaf for many corporations. And I was really happy to see our CEO, Randall Stevenson, really step up and really take a leadership role and really urge corporate America to take a stand and to take a position and to really step forward and to use its resources and personnel to really impact change in the public policy arena. So Our employees expected it. They demanded it. There was a sensitivity to their feelings. And I think being empathetic corporate leaders, we were required to take some type of action and to recognize the real pain that was going through our communities.
1: Your CEO recently said in a CNBC interview, we have a big problem and it needs to be dealt with. And that quote really highlights the fact that your company and many others have, just as you mentioned, large African-American employee bodies. And because of that, it's time to speak out and take action, including working with us as policymakers and political leaders to deal with this issue head on. The list of people that are part of the BRT, the Business Roundtable, is impressive. Mary Barra of General Motors, Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan Chase, Alex Gorsky of Johnson & Johnson, just to name a few. Given that BRT, what policy recommendations have emerged out of that business roundtable task force?
0: Sure. And when Randall started the work at the Business Roundtable, it was really an attempt to look at some broad overlaying principles that we could take to Congress and really urge our federal colleagues and policymakers to really implement some type of national framework, and they really focused on some specific areas around transparency and some minimum standards of police conduct, significantly around de-escalation, but also around data and collecting data around what's happening. If we can't measure it, it's really hard to figure out what the right solution is going to be to the problem, and once we have that data and we can measure those results to really hold law enforcement accountable for these actions, and so the work of the subcommittee at the Business Roundtable really led to these broad principles, and the hope was that we could really get Congress to focus on some actions. But given the difficulty that Congress is having these days and really resolving any type of dispute, it was then decided that if we really can't get national or federal legislation passed this particular calendar year, that we'd look at what kind of incremental movement can we make at the state and local level. So we actually took a quick pivot, and fortunately, we were able to bring a number of our business allies with us to the state and local level to look for opportunities for reform at the state and municipal level, and we've had some great success there.
1: It's so important to be able to work at both the federal and state level and find opportunities where you can find commonalities and solutions. Can you explain a little bit more about those particular police reform principles that the Business Roundtable has adopted?
0: We really wanted to lead with transparency because it was so incredibly important for the community to have a real respect for the kind of data that was being produced from law enforcement around the country. And so we looked at transparency and knew that Many different states and many municipalities were at different points down this journey, and we came in with the recommendations to really shine a light on this trust factor that many communities had with policing data, and so we really wanted to make sure that our recommendations included one that would make this data available for public consumption, and that was really one of the leading items, because we wanted to really instill trust back into law enforcement so that the entire community could feel safe, understanding that data was being used in a way that would lead to genuine reform.
1: Ken, your CEO was recently quoted as saying, we're refocusing our efforts to create more opportunities and paths to success for Black and underserved communities, building on our longstanding work to create economic prosperity for all in this country. You know, it really seems like your team is working hard to be on the right side of social justice. So given that, how can businesses like AT&T help empower Black and marginalized communities?
0: You know, that's a great question, Senator. One of the things that we realized that it's more than simply the policy arena and changing public policy that needs to happen in order to ensure real equality for black and brown communities across the country. And that we also looked at how can we engage community-based organizations and other allies to help us with this work. And I think we kind of look at it from a very holistic standpoint. Once we can regain trust in our communities around law enforcement and try to address from a policy standpoint some of these systemic problems and challenges that we face how can we then support economic empowerment so that communities are feeling as if these companies are listening? And so working hand in glove with community-based organizations who are also doing wonderful work, but helping them really go into the community and expand the work that they are doing with support from our philanthropic arms and our corporate sustainability groups, that's one way we could really double down and really make a difference. You know, as we're in their communities and we're asking for change, we have to turn the mirror on ourselves as well because we need to look at ourselves. Are we doing what we need to do internally within our companies to ensure that we're creating an equitable workplace because that's no better place to really start with an economic empowerment than to ensure that your own house is in order and we're certainly trying to do that at AT AT&T where we've adopted a rule of transparency around diversity and inclusion numbers so that we understand where we stand and more importantly where we need to devote our resources because we have work to do and I think that it's an open and honest communication about that and we've encouraged these difficult conversations but that's the start. That's a great first start. And we challenge all of our other allied and peer corporations to do the same thing because economic empowerment, it starts at home, and then we can take that into the community.
1: I really do believe that the same way corporate America has work to do, we also have work to do inside of our legislatures to ensure that the voices of Black and Brown communities are heard, but that we're also working to elect more Black and Brown leaders to public office. And so more on that point, I'm curious how AT&T is engaging with communities and how you're offering economic opportunities and upward mobility.
0: You know, one of the things that we've realized is that we can't continue to do the same thing and expect different results. And we have found that we really need to rethink how we are reaching into the community, looking at potential employees, and ensuring that once hired that they can rise up the ranks of the company. And so we've initiated some programs that we think really help us in this way, and we have doubled down on our focus at historically black institutions and institutions of higher education with significant Latinx populations to ensure that we can have incoming employee groups that better reflect the vast diversity of America. And we're challenging other technology companies to do the same thing because they tend to recruit at certain locations and these locations aren't always representative of the general population, yet the kinds of skills that we need Quite frankly, today are as varied as possible, and really to compete in the current environment, we need to bring as many lived experiences to the table as possible. We live in a world where work is centered around collaboration and cooperation, and really understanding these different lived experiences of our constituents, of our consumers. And so, I think the best way of addressing that great diversity of America is to have that diversity represented around the table so that people. People who are making these decisions about products and services reflect that kind of diversity and lived experiences that's better reflective of our country. And I think that even from just a competitive standpoint, companies see this as a business imperative. We need that talent. We need that diverse lived experience, that diverse lens of experience, that great journey reflected at our decision-making table. And so I think that's driving corporations to do the right thing for many, many reasons.
1: Just to continue on, in the same way that y'all are having this conversation in corporate America, we too, within our policymaking tables are having a really similar conversation. Looking at the AT&T website right now, you go to the website and it says in all capital letters, we stand for equality. It continues on with some great language, Black Lives Matter, and we have a moral and business obligation to engage on this fundamental issue of equality and fairness. There's really a running theme of driving change for social justice, both outside and inside of the company. And so Ken, beyond C-suite level leadership, what steps is AT&T taking to advance racial equity and social justice goals internally?
0: Sure, and I'm glad you brought up our corporate website because standing for equality really undergirds all that we're doing. I mean, it's one of our founding values. And I think in order to impact change in the public policy arena and, in fact, continue that journey of change internally, we have to start with some moral authority. And I think that the reason we've been successful both externally and internally is that we have this historical presence of standing for what's right and back in the early 20s when we were one of the first companies to hire women and bring them into the workplace and see that success in the 40s and 50s and then subsequently in the civil rights movement to increase our employees of color I mean we've had this long-standing history of standing for equality. So I think that that gives us some type of moral authority to really be able to make some of the changes and ask the right questions externally. But I think internally we continue to question how can we be our best and how can we even get better at doing some of the things that we'd like to see. And I think understanding that really requires what our leaders have said, and that is that we have, as our founding value, standing for equality. And I think that having that as a significant pillar of what it is that we do and everything that we stand for helps us make the right decisions internally, and then holding people accountable. I mean, making sure that they understand that as a founding value of the company that that's part of their evaluation, and that's part of how we determine success and ensuring that diversity and Inclusion is infused in what we do, and it's especially important now. And I think that particularly with younger employees coming in, they demand that their employer be socially responsible and be a good corporate citizenship it really becomes that differentiator for them and so i think we all become challenged to do this as we want to attract the best talent and i think that this pushes us all in the right direction so i'm very pleased with the way things are headed and i know that we're not dipping our toe in this we're actually diving in head first and that we want to be leaders in this area as we go forward
1: Speaking of diving in headfirst, your SVP of Corporate Social Responsibility and Chief Sustainability Officer, Charlene Lake, has said that your team learned early on that we can make a big impact by listening to our employees on the ground about where and how best to help in a given market. She was speaking about national workforce readiness programs. And so... I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about this and explain how you're supporting a diverse employee workforce during these challenging times.
0: Typically, corporate philanthropic efforts tend to have a global reach and high aspirations and national programs. We realized early on that we have a significant workforce of 250,000 employees spread all over the country, and we've challenged them all to be engaged in their communities, but we weren't always listening to what they were telling us, and we realized early on that we have great ambassadors out there in living, working in the communities that have their finger on the pulse of our communities. That They understand what our communities value. And so we started listening to them and we asked them specific questions about how do we get engaged in your community? How do we make a difference in your community? How do we understand what your community is expecting of their corporate leaders? So we started getting support for community-based organizations, and we were really surprised by the real thirst of our employees to be actively engaged. And so we created a national program called Believe, And it was about believing in the community, but it was as much about having our employees engaged in the community because they would bring up certain organizations and certain activities that they wanted to engage in all around a common theme of economic development or education and economic well-being. And we were really surprised at the success of the program and the Believe Campaign has been one of our signature events as we engage very locally and it looks differently from every city to every state, but it's driven by one, our desire to be engaged and connected to our community and to understand what's valued in that community and provide both financial resources and personnel resources to help support that objective.
1: Thank you for sharing that with us. For all of those who are listening in, prior to Ken's latest position, he served as president of at California from 2005 to 2018, and he held the role of vice president of law and government affairs at at and from 2000 to 2005. After joining the company initially in 1991 as a senior attorney specializing in corporate litigation. You know, I bring up that history of your different roles within the company because I think it's safe to say that you probably had some help along the way. And so I'm curious if you can talk about the role that mentorship has played for you personally, both in terms of being mentored as well as being a mentor yourself.
0: Absolutely. That's a great question. I mean, I think that navigating a large corporate bureaucracy is almost impossible without good mentorship. And as I joined the company as a young lawyer, it was incumbent upon me to kind of navigate this kind of morass of rules and internal politics and external politics. And when you're put in that kind of environment... It's important to find a mentor or two or three if you can. I mean, sometimes in a large work environment, you may find a manager, that has a special interest in one particular area, and then another with a special interest in another area. But together, you combine all of that wisdom, that experience, and that helps you navigate your journey through corporate America. And I think that's so important that people be willing to aspire, but also to reach back and to not pull that ladder up behind you. I've been with the company now for almost 28 years, and I see my responsibility even to start to reach down and to mentor other younger managers behind me and help them navigate the changing waters we are now working in a corporate environment that's drastically changing. And 2020 has been one of those years that has changed almost by definition. This is our new normal and being able to navigate through all of this and understand what's important to lean into adversity and to understand where opportunity might rest it's not easily discovered by those just entering the business, and I think it's incumbent upon us who have been here for a while to help interpret the landscape for those coming behind us. You know, particularly for those of us of color who may not see ourselves reflected in large numbers in senior ranks, and I think that we have an added responsibility to look for young aspiring managers of color and women and give them the advice and counsel that we had and benefited from to be able to rise up in the organization.
1: According to the AT&T commitment, quote, our society doesn't work if it doesn't work equally for all. The company is currently working with civil rights organizations, and additionally, they're on the ground in many communities addressing education, workforce, and the other needs of underserved communities, including the Black community. They say that they'll continue to learn from their employees, the community, and other businesses. Can I like to add another group into the equation? What are some of the ways that business can learn from government in terms of ensuring diverse talent like race and gender is nurtured and promoted?
0: One of the things that I think that we can learn from government is that it casts a very broad net for its entry-level employees, and I think that oftentimes large corporations, and particularly on the technology side, become very narrowly focused on what is the right qualification for entry level, and it tends to be one or two elite institutions. And I think that when we start to think about the entry-level work that's required of these corporations, I think that... Government does a much better job at understanding what are those entry-level qualifications for employees to come in, and they cast a much wider net than the business community. And I think that we could do a better job of assessing the necessary skills and where that kind of training for those skills can come from, because I do think that we have a number of elite institutions that are overrepresented in our numbers, and we know that many institutions of higher learning are producing great candidates who could excel in our institutions that better reflect the great diversity of our country, and I think the government does a much better job of that.
1: That is super fascinating. On the flip side, what do you think that we in government can learn from business?
0: Oh, wow. You know, I think that one of the things that businesses do well is that once you're in the door, being able to provide continuing education, the training, the experience that you get the mentoring capability or opportunity that we talked about earlier. I think that businesses understand that once we've made that initial investment of bringing a great talent into the enterprise, It's our obligation, it's our responsibility, and it's to our financial benefit to nurture, to grow that talent and have him or her succeed in the enterprise. And I think that businesses do a great job overall ensuring that we grow the talent, that we continue to educate and give different opportunities to our best and brightest and have them come up through the ranks of the corporation. So, I mean, I think that that's something that, the public sector could do a better job at. I know that many folks tend to feel that they're trapped in the bureaucracy and don't necessarily have the opportunity for upper mobility, nor feel that they're being educated and trained for opportunities that might arise in the public sector as they build their career.
1: (laughs) If you would have asked me even three years ago, if I would have ever considered running for office, I would have laughed at you. Because I never saw myself in this position, but here I am. And to that point, I think the more that we see ourselves reflected in positions of political leadership or corporate leadership, you know, we have to continue that work. As we've been discussing, it's essential for business leaders to focus their social justice efforts internally and externally. A great example is the work being done in Chicago, supporting existing education and skills-building programs in communities impacted by high unemployment and violence. Another example is work being done in Dallas, where 70% of the homeless population is Black. I see and t plans to continue their support of organizations focused on reducing the number of people being displaced from their homes. And finally, In Birmingham, work continues on education disparities for at-risk youth. And so that's just some of the work being done on the outside. And so now I'd like to focus on internal efforts. Ken, what best practices are helping AT&T's efforts succeed when it comes to hiring, recruiting, and developing women and minorities across all levels, C-suite, executive and senior level officials, and managers?
0: It starts with some of the things that you've referenced you know, understanding, creating one, a great place to work, and I think part of creating a great place to work is understanding that we don't work in a vacuum. When we did go into the office, <laughs> we didn't go into the office and close the world out behind us. I think at and really understands that our employees, they come to work with their communities, with their families, with their faith-based organizations, with what makes them themselves, and I think that that's important because it helps us stay grounded and it helps the company stay connected to the communities where our employees work and live and our customers work and live. And that provides for a very enriching work environment. But to your point about what do we do to ensure that women and managers of color can make their way up to the organization, it's part of what you alluded to as well. And that is this concept of seeing oneself Reflected. I mean, I believe very strongly about the concept of windows and mirrors, that we need to see ourselves reflected in the mirror and that for us to understand that, yes, we too can achieve certain things. And it's important that women and managers of color are able to see themselves reflected, to understand that we can achieve these things. And I think that that's incumbent in leadership in large companies and AT&T as well that those of us who have achieved were out there and we're making ourselves visible and we are mentoring folks as well but I also think it's important to have those windows and what I mean by windows is that people need to be able to see through the window people that don't look like them and have a varied experience because it is as important for them to understand and to see a different life experience we strive to create empathetic leaders and that we want people to understand and be able to see the world through someone else's eyes so that they understand exactly the motivations and the concerns. And I think that makes us much better leaders. And I think that the fact that we evaluate on empathy is different for corporate America, but so important to create an environment where people feel that they can be their authentic selves. They can bring their full selves to work and that their lived experiences, as varied and different as they are, are valued and there's something to be added to the table. One of my mentors told me that the very thing that you could be trying to temp down that thing, whatever it is that you feel that you need to hide to fit in, might be the very thing your organization needs to succeed. It could be your value add. It could be your secret sauce. And so it's so important to honor those differences, to raise them up and to celebrate them, because those are the very things that the organization might need to succeed.
1: That's so important. I think it's becoming quite clear the power that socially conscious business leaders can have on communities all across the country, particularly when it comes to social justice and equality. Sometimes these leaders and their organizations support legislation that aligns with their own priorities. How can policymakers, local, state, and federal, support the fight for racial justice and equity?
0: I think that the work that we've started around the Business Roundtable and our allied corporations in this effort has been well received by policymakers. And I think it's been refreshing that policymakers have responded very positively, you know, not always agreeing with us, but excited that we're at the table, that we're part of the discussion, that it's not just about profits. It's about creating environments where our employees and our customers can be safe and comfortable and thrive in their communities. And I think that companies being part of that conversation is refreshing and different, and I think that now that we're part of it, I don't think we can turn back, and I don't think we will turn back. I think that we realize that this is what our employees, what our customers want us to be involved in these conversations, and I think that policymakers are receiving it well and, again, not always agreeing with our positions, but excited that we're part of the conversation.
1: In California there are multiple policies under consideration that AT&T is supportive of. AB 2054 creates a pilot program administered by the California Office of Emergency Services to provide financial support to community organizations responding to emergency issues such as substance abuse, mental health disturbances, and domestic violence. AB 1299 will help make sure that local police departments don't hire problematic officers with a history of serious misconduct. And AB 1196 would make it illegal for officers to use the carotid hold to detain a suspect. Ken, can you explain why these three pieces of legislation are so important?
0: We looked at some of the legislation around police reform that California was considering. And here in California, we have a very large employee population of about 40,000. And when we looked at the different kinds of reform that the legislature was considering, we aligned that with the recommendations of the business roundtable, and we were able to quickly point to some that were – certainly right aligned with some of the recommendations and we engaged full throttle on supporting those pieces of legislation and one of the really fascinating things senator was we started to pay visits to members of the legislature and as i had stated before they were so surprised but appreciative of us being there and for us to speak on behalf of our employees because, again, we have standing because we want our employees to be able to live and work in communities where they feel safe. And as I shared earlier, after the George Floyd murder, we were profoundly impacted by that, and it did impact our employees. It impacted me. And so our employees really were excited that we would go and voice there are concerns in the halls of the legislature and when we ask our employees if they were willing to write letters to support certain bills, we saw numbers of participation we had never seen before and we had upwards to 40% of the employees that we asked to write their respective legislators agreed to write and they anxiously agreed to do it. They moved forward with it. We've never seen that kind of response before.
1: Absolutely. And I would be remiss if I didn't also mention the policies that we worked on here in Colorado. I was honored to serve on the Senate State Affairs Committee to hear Senate Bill 217 in Colorado, which changed police department practices for the good of the entire state. That was an incredible piece of bipartisan legislation that brought together folks from all sides of the political spectrum, all sides of the law enforcement community, and it happened while Black Lives Matter protesters were literally outside of the Capitol, while we were in the building debating this policy. Recently, your president of AT&T Colorado, Roberta Robinette, she wrote an op-ed which appeared in the Gazette, and she said that we must never forget the names of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmad Arbery, and Richard Brooks. So why did this bill mean so much to AT&T?
0: Well, first, let me congratulate you and the members of the Colorado legislature for that work. It really set a tone across the country, and I cite it regularly to support the work that can be done for reform. So congratulations on that accomplishment. It was important to us because you were one of the first state efforts to really tackle reform in a meaningful way, And Roberta, representing AT&T in Colorado, was right on point and we were very supportive of her efforts to make sure that the community understood where we stood as a corporation fighting the fight for our employees to be able to live in communities where they didn't fear for their lives and appreciated this kind of reform. And we wanted to provide the full thrust of our brand and our resources behind this effort, and it was very important for us to be able to make a statement and to show the support for the legislators who were really taking a leadership role in moving the agenda on police reform. So again, congratulations on that.
1: Thank you. I think it just underscores again, the concept that you had mentioned earlier around windows and mirrors. The fact that the Black and Latino caucuses were able to come together to be the prime sponsors of that effort in passing Senate Bill 217 here in Colorado, you know, that really demonstrates what we can achieve when we do work together. And so, as we wrap up, Ken, do you have a key takeaway or closing comments for our listeners, whether they're policymakers or someone who is interested in social justice reform?
0: One of the things I've always said is that these are difficult conversations oftentimes, and it's so incredibly important that we listen. After the death of George Floyd, I wrote a reflections piece on the at and website about reflections on race. And I talked about how important it was for our managers to listen to each other and not to listen to agree or disagree, but to listen to understand. And I think that's so incredibly important as we build out empathetic leaders, which is what we all should aspire to be. And so my closing remarks would simply be that... We all need to listen more. We need to listen, again, not to agree or to disagree, but to understand each other, to understand that we all have lived experiences and we all take in this great world differently based on our upbringing, based on our own experiences. And they may not be shared by others, but they're profoundly impactful on those that do experience them. So just listen.
1: I really appreciate that. It's through listening that we're better able to understand each other's perspectives. And when we understand each other, we're able to take actions that improve everyone's lives, whether that's in the corporate world or in the political world. Ken, I just wanna thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and sharing your perspectives.
0: Thank you, I've really enjoyed chatting today.
1: We'll never forget their names. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmad Arbery and Richard Brooks, and thankfully, people in influential positions are working with civil rights organizations, law enforcement, elected officials, and other businesses on the local, state, and federal levels, pushing for change that addresses injustices in law enforcement. Once again, I'd like to thank AT&T's Ken McNeely for providing all of his insights. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners for taking the time to hear this important discussion. Don't forget to subscribe to, like, or share our podcast. You can also email us by visiting womeningovernment.org. You've been listening to the Women in Government podcast, a resource made
0: available for those interested in discussing important issues and policies of the day. For more information, please visit our website at womeningovernment.org.